almost the more popular the military is, the more of a draw there is to to try to pull it into uh, partisan politics. It's sort of, you know, paradox of prestige, as I think a colleague of mine, uh, Jason Dempsey, has called it. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is with Jim Golby, one of the country's foremost experts on civil-military relations. He's currently a senior fellow at the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas and just retired after 20 years in the U.S. Army. We last got into this topic over the summer with General Dan Christman, talking about the events around the riots and protests, particularly efforts to bring the U.S. military in to eject protesters from Lafayette Square. Actually, Jim Golby was one of General Christman's students when he was superintendent at West Point, so it all comes full, full circle. In our conversation today, we talk further about the difficult relationship between the military and the Trump administration, and how the military has tried, not always successfully, to stay out of politics in recent years. If you like our conversation, you can hear more from Jim on his show, Thank You for Your Service, available wherever you get your podcasts. And now... Let's get into the conversation. Jim Golby, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Well, great to have you. So you recently left the Army after two decades in service, right? Yes, just uh, over 20 even, years. Yeah. Even then, even when you were within the Army, you spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about the relationship between civilian and military life, civ-mil affairs, as, as we talk about. It's been a fraught relationship even throughout that, those 20 years in the military. We think of it as, as a, a Trump administration solely problem, but this has been an issue for as long as the country's been around, but certainly for the last 20 years, it's been an issue of, of how to, to define this relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would take it back even further than that. So if you go back and you look at some of the ancient philosophers, you know, even Plato, um, you know, had this famous phrase, who will guard the guardian guardians themselves, you know, directly looking at this question of how do militaries interact with their, you know, civilian leaders? How do you set up a society where you can have a healthy relationship where those with coercive power aren't the ones who get to make all the decisions and, you know, how can you develop, you know, a healthy relationship that allows both of those functions, the democratic tradition, as well as the military effectiveness that you need to work well together. Yeah. And of course, the founding fathers were avid re readers of the classics and they knew all of, all of those as well. And they, they were trying to figure out a way to define a Republic without building in the entities that could undermine it. And one of them was the, the military power, you know, dictatorships in ancient Rome and, and Greece mm -hmm. had led to the, the ending of, of Republican eras. And of course, one of the, the, their main problems that they had with King George and, and the English was that the English army were put under a separate power than civilian power. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting, I think, to look back at the continuities between that, as well as some of the differences. Because when we started off in the United States, we were very concerned about the fact that the president could become a king or a tyrant and that he'd be able to co-opt the military for himself. 
But today we're much more focused on whether or not the president can control the military at all and whether or not right. he can get them to do the things he wants. Um, so it, it's really fascinating to see the way these relationships ebb and flow. And I think one of the other things that's so strikingly different today from our founding period is when you look at many of our debates today, you have a public that largely admires the military, you know, recent public opinion surveys dating back at least since 9-11 and probably even a little before that place confidence in the military in the, the mid 70s, higher than just about any other institution throughout our society. You know, and that's, that's a very different environment than the founders were dealing with where they were deeply skeptical of the ability of, you know, the executive to use the military to threaten civil liberties and civil rights. And today we're much more concerned about you know, getting the military under control, though for the first time uh, in, in quite some time over the, the last two decades, we've started to see some of those concerns about civil liberties and about the ability of the president or an executive to use the military domestically, uh, like we saw this summer uh, in Lafayette Square on June 1st. Some of those same fears are starting to creep back in, largely because we have such contentious domestic politics polarization, right. and you're often left with the military sort of stuck in the middle um, in a way that both Republicans and Democrats, both the president and Congress, uh, often want to co-opt military leaders to either be a sword to attack their opponents or a shield, shield to defend themselves. Uh, and it, it leaves us, us with a situation where, you know, I think the, the relationship is changing from where it was, you know, two decades ago, but it's, it's not entirely clear how that's going to play out especially because we're in such a polarized moment uh, with the presidential transition. So it's, it's going to be very important for the leaders, the Biden-Harris administration, as well as leaders in Congress to think more seriously about these issues than they have been certainly for the last decade or two. Yeah, I mean, it's natural for a politician to look at an institution like the military and that the 70, 80 percent approval rating, rating that they have and say, I want some of that. Let, let me cloak myself in the, the popular military and Congress gets a abysmal score when you look at those 15% approval rating. Obviously, it's higher for your own member of Congress, but Congress as a whole never, never scores well recently. And, you know, I think, I think that, that it is a natural thing to want to cloak themselves in it. And I think it is important to note how the military, especially the, the officer corps, it has become this really important division that we are not political. It, it is something that is inculcated in, in you all as you go through West Point, as you go through ROTC or how, however you come in, that you are a separate organization from the political power. You hear about some, some senior officers saying, oh, I, I don't even ever vote. But the, the idea is, is that you are not a political force and you've been inculcated against that. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's precisely where this tension comes up. You have you know, a nonpartisan military that very much as its identity sees itself as professionals focused on giving expert military advice being effective at using, you know, violence to accomplish our goals overseas. But then you have domestic, domestic political leaders that look at that and see that as, you know, a really attractive political ally. And so you oftentimes either see political leaders wanting to pull the military in, or you occasionally see military leaders recognize that they have some of that power 
and on usually it's only on um, you know minor issues, but from time to time they'll assert themselves into policy debates in a way that you know can certainly challenge the authority of executive or congressional leaders. Uh, and so it's you know it's a real tension where you do want to have a military that's nonpartisan. You do want to have a military that as much as possible is separated from our electoral debates. But on the other hand, there are so many policy issues. There's so much attraction to draw the military in that you know it's a it's a real tension. And the more almost the more popular the military is, the more of a draw there is to to try to pull it into. Uh, partisan politics. It's sort of, you know, paradox of prestige, as I think a colleague of mine, uh, Jason Dempsey, has called it. Interesting. It's not only that we'll get to the to the recent Trump administration moves and, and the last year in a second, but this is not only something that we saw uh, within the Trump administration, right? You know, during the extended debate early in the Obama administration, there was this push from within the military ranks to kind of push back against any withdrawal of forces from, from Afghanistan, especially, but also from Iraq. And it, it was kind of this thing that, you know, they were clearly trying to play both the inside and the outside game as well. I, I at the time, was working at the International Institute for Strategic Studies when Dan McChrystal came and gave his his speech there talking about coin and how he was going to do it with a surge in Afghanistan. And it was clearly a little bit insubordinate. And, and I remember watching it being like, whoa, this is <laughs> this is a lot. It's it's not just that this is something that only the the military is the victim of. They there's also times when they try and uh, use their weight to get their way as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a lot of this has been growing, you know, going back to the Vietnam War, which in some ways was a huge breaking point for professional officers. And, you know, coming out of that, you had a number of trends going on. One was the creation of an all-volunteer force where we started, you know, trying to recruit the best and the brightest and not relying on a draft anymore. Uh, you had the sort of professionalization of the officer corps in particular and efforts to try to reform it as an institution uh, that was, you know, sort of much cleaner and uh, much uh, more focused on its ability to fight and win the kinds of wars that it wanted to win. And then you also had in the country massive growing political polarization as the parties sort of drew apart from one another. And so by the early 1990s, we had had a situation where, you know, Colin Powell, General Colin Powell, mm -hmm. uh, was, you know, one of the first chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to come in after these Goldwater Nickel reforms, uh, which had granted more power to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And there was a big concern at the time. There were a few articles you know, saying that we had a crisis in civilian control because Powell was exercising so much political authority, particularly in the transition. So you know, right before the election of uh, 1992, Powell wrote an op-ed, Why Generals Get Nervous, which essentially was pushing back on arguments that later President Clinton and his campaign had been making about efforts in Bosnia and wanting to take a more aggressive approach. And with it being so close to an election, you know, there were lines in there that seemed almost like an endorsement of a right. political candidate. And so, you know, we saw that develop with, with Colin Powell. Uh, we saw this growth of retired general officers taking more of a role 
in politics, both on uh, both in the media as talking heads on cable news, as well as endorsing candidates, uh, you know, taking sort of the lead in campaigns. And then in the early 2000s, we saw this revolt of the generals where it wasn't the military or it, it wasn't active duty military trying to persuade civilian leaders to give them more resources. It was retired generals actually trying to persuade President Bush to fire Secretary Rumsfeld. And so right, right. these are, are tensions that we you know, see throughout our history. And it's, it's certainly not just the last four decades, though I do think you can sort of draw a line back to the Vietnam War and, and trace out those three tens, trends I've been talking about and see how they help to you know, set up a situation where it can be even more challenging to manage this relationship than it had been before. That's right. You know, we, we did a, a podcast on this topic back in June with our board member, uh, General Dan Chrisman, and he, he talked about how when he was a soldier coming back from Vietnam, that the U.S. Army was not viewed in good standing by, by public. It wouldn't have gotten those, those high polling numbers that we talked about before. And so it is a, a perishable thing. This is something that the military and our civilian culture and our government has made an investment in is a professional military, a separate nonpartisan professional military. And so people who are involved in that want to protect that and they want to protect that investment. And it's important for our country, for our constitution that they do. And so that's why people have gotten up in arms about the Trump administration trying to co-opt the military co-op the images of the military, if not the, the actual military personnel. You know, Trump saying, well, I've got my generals here in, in his early, the, the early time of his, his term, talking about General Mattis, General Kelly, McMaster, and others, and, and then kind of moving away from that as they, you know, exerted some independence that, that maybe he didn't want turns out that having a civilian military doesn't necessarily mean they, they'll do exactly what you want if what you want is not in that tradition, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, that's something we frequently see where, you know, President Trump has referred to it as the, the deep state or, you know, as general officers out to try to undermine his policy goals in Afghanistan and elsewhere. But this is something that presidents have had to deal with, you know, going back for decades and really throughout U.S. history, where the military has interests of its own. It's worried about the institution. It's worried about threats. It's not as worried about trade-offs or domestic priorities as the president or as other policy advisors. It's not as worried um, for good reason about focusing on diplomacy. And so, you know, there's a, there's a reason why we want civilian control, because it allows elected officials to take a broader view of problems, to make these risk decisions, but it creates a fundamental tension when you have military officers who are advocating for the things that they truly believe from their vantage point are the best for their institution and the nation, but when they can't either see the entire playing field or when they simply just have different priorities than elected officials. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's, that's something we've seen under the Trump administration. We saw it before, I think one of the things that is really so different with this administration is, you know, he started saying some of the quiet parts out loud. So, you know, the, right. you know, you had previous administrations like, you know, President George W. Bush certainly had General uh, David Petraeus 
as you know, one of the talking heads, one of the, uh, the salespeople for the surge in Iraq. There were you know, situations under the Obama administration where he also had military officers um, in positions that sort of influenced things. He gave his big speech on uh, the surge in Afghanistan for you know, a crowd of 4,000 cadets at West Point. I think what's different with President Trump is he's not so subtle. He doesn't just use the image. He comes out and says, these are my generals. They're loyal to me. The army loves me. These, these guys voted for me. And so I think there is an extension of what was already happening, but simply breaking through that norm of having to, you know, at least wink and nod and pretend that you are living up to the norm while trying to push the edges has some dangerous consequences because it, right. it, it's difficult to get that back in the box uh, when people, you know, see President Trump getting away with it sort of like he has. But at the same time, that sort of norm breaking also really activated the antibodies, right? Yep. You know, you, you didn't see when Petraeus was up testifying on Capitol Hill in 2007. I remember those hearings very well. I was working on the Hill at the time. And yes, it was very clear that they had decided that Petraeus was going to be spokesperson instead of Bush, because Petraeus is a lot more was a lot more popular and respected than Bush. And so he was the face of it. And so he's going to get it through. And he did. But when Trump says all this sort of stuff, it really activated the antibodies. Hundreds of, of retired generals and other national security leaders uh, signed a letter saying that this, is, this shouldn't be done. Mattis comes out finally and, and said some things his first time after leaving SecDef as did you know, everyone else. And, and General Milley, of course, then comes out a week later saying it was, it was a mistake for me to be out in Lafayette Square. And you know, I think that that's, that is important that perhaps Trump was, was too roughshod in running over these norms. Yeah, and, and I think you know, one of the things about norms is it's not just a routine behavior that always happens. Part of a norm is actually enforcing it when it gets broken. And right. for all of the norms that we've seen, you know, sort of pushed up against and, and not enforced, I think on June 1st in Lafayette Square, particularly having General Milley and all the photos, having him walking around uh, Washington DC in his, you know, in his camouflage uniform, I think that in particular really resonated uh, and really concerned a lot of retired officers, a lot of active officers, and and saw it as crossing a line that we just didn't want to go beyond. And I think we've seen that at different points throughout, you know, the Trump administration and other administrations, where you know people can get away with some things, but there are still at least enough safeguards that when you take that step too far, having you know Millie there for what was clearly sort of a partisan photo op. Um, where you do trigger those antibodies, you do trigger pushback, and you actually see, you know, the profession, the military profession, sort of policing itself and saying this right. wasn't appropriate, and generating sort of the pressure you needed for uh, for General Milley to then come back and apologize and sort of reaffirm his commitment to the nonpartisan ethic. But there is this tension, though, between the norms. And actually, the law, the Constitution says that the president is the commander in chief, right? And so there is a part that if he gives an order, you're supposed to salute and go ahead with it. Now, that does come in, into conflict with the law of posse comitatus and, and that sort of stuff. The military is not supposed to be used for 
domestic law enforcement. So if he gives an order, it does have to be a lawful order, right? So that's yes, that's- absolutely. And you know, one of the things that is so challenging about that experience in late May and early June is that the president probably had the necessary legal authorities if he had wanted to, to take more aggressive actions either with the National Guard or with the the military than he actually did. And so there was a lot of concern from civil military relations scholars on the flip side, not just of reinforcing the norm that it did with General Milley, but also activating the military as what looked like a partisan opposition to the president. And so depending on which way you look at it, if you see it as retired uh, officers really coming back and sanctioning Milley, um, that might look more positive. But if you look at it as retired officers coming out and condemning Trump, which is clearly how it was portrayed and, and clearly how former Secretary Mattis's comments, particular read, as well as retired Admiral Mullen's uh, piece, I believe yeah. in the Atlantic read as well. It was, yeah. it was much more pr- directed at President Trump than so there, there are reasons to be con- concerned about that. Again, you know, this tension between military officers trying to subvert, subvert the legitimate electoral authority of the president. And this is a narrative that has been prominent going back to early in the Obama administration. So you referenced General McChrystal earlier. Um, you know, there was very much a sense when the Obama team came in that they got boxed in on Afghanistan. Right. And he right. was the president felt like he was forced into a situation where because of public pressure, because of media pressure, because of leaks, both by uniformed and civilian leaders, he felt like he was running out of options and decision space and didn't have you know, the ability to make the decisions that he wanted. And we've seen sort of the, the same thing, both in this case, we talked about with President Trump, as well as lots of his decisions related to policy on the border, policy yeah. in Syria. And yeah. so there, there really is this fine balance between the legal requirement, the norms that are in place for the military, but the part we haven't talked about yet really is the norms on the civilian side. And that's you know one of the places that I think are weak, again, not just among President Trump, but among many elected officials in Congress and the executive branch, where they just don't recognize sort of the, the problems. They're not brought up, you know, reading Huntington and Janowitz and Peter yeah. And all these people that military officers encounter throughout their professional development and their military career. And so for them, it just seems like, hey, we're being patriotic and, and pulling this officer with a flag, you know, into this shot. And they, yeah. they don't fully recognize the message that that sends to those in uniform. They don't necessarily recognize the message that that might send to the general public um, or the difficult position that it puts senior officers in. Because although they do owe allegiance to the president as commander in chief, they also swear an oath to the Constitution. Yeah. And part of that is respecting all branches, all branches of the government. And it's, it's not always the case that, you know, putting themselves in a position where they are viewed as legitimizing the president's policies, apart from carrying out his orders. So going above and beyond what they're required to do by the Constitution, it's not always clear that that's healthy. And it triggers some of those same types of fears that, you know, the founders had that we talked about in the, yeah. the discussion that the, the president will try to co-op the military um, to use it for, you know, ways that will violate civil liberties or congressional oversight and all sorts of other concerns. Well, you, you mentioned Afghanistan. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. And so here we are, middle of November. The president has just over two months left. He just recently fired a lot of his 
civilian leadership in the Pentagon. Now, uh, this doesn't get into issues of norms because the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and resignations by, you know, several of the other civilian leadership in there, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, all of these, these people were civilian leaders. So it's, they, were, they serve at the pleasure of the president and they're part of the civilian control of the military. And yet it feels like this is one perhaps final push against the, the military and the Pentagon here by the Trump administration to get done a priority of perhaps of, of pulling out of, out of Afghanistan over the objections of the military. What's your take on, on what's going on here and you know, the replacement of, of these sort of professional civilian leaders with uh, more political types with strong allegiance to the, to the Trump White House? Yeah, so it's a great question and it really stirred up a lot of controversy last week. You know, the the first thing I'll comment on is, um, you know, some of the alarmism that we saw. I understand why people are concerned when you see this very irregular occurrence happening in the Pentagon. A lot of people don't understand it. But the one thing I I do want to point out is this is not the sort of thing that you would do, at least not in this way, if you were trying to co-opt the military for use domestically. The people and the positions that he replaced are not the key positions that you would need to worry about if you were actively trying to mobilize the military to be able to use it in some sort of domestic capacity. So, you know, Patel went into the chief of staff job, which is sort of notoriously powerless in the Pentagon. There's very little authority other than managing some of the secretary of defense's calendar and meetings, which, you know, is not not insignificant, but it's not the guy that you replace if you're trying to uh, deploy the 82nd airborne um, you know, into, into Washington, D.C. So, you know, we have not seen any of the types of steps that you would actually need to see by the president or anyone else that should make people um, alarmed that we're, we're seeing in some way, you know, the president try to turn the military against itself. And there's, there's a lot of alarms out, out there, so it's, it's worth commenting on. That said, I do think, as we've talked about, the president has felt very constrained on many policy decisions throughout this administration. And there's a good case that he has strong reason to be frustrated. So the the current special envoy to um, Syria who had been working on the uh, defeat ISIS campaign and and, and working in our Syria policy, Ambassador James Jeffries just did an interview earlier this week with Katie Bo Williams of Defense One in which he said, you know, we had to go through, we had to take a lot of steps to play a shell game so that our leaders were not fully aware of the number of troops that we had in Syria at any given time. Um, I mean, you talk about saying the quiet part out loud, you know? Yeah, and <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really shocking, one, that he yeah. would admit that, um, and two, that that's something that's been going on. And so, you know, you lay that on top of these narratives that, that we've heard from, you know, senior military leaders pushing back from the start on the president's desire in 2017 to you know, withdraw forces from Afghanistan, uh, the president's desire to withdraw forces and cooperation uh, with the, the Kurds in northern Syria um, in 2018 yeah. and 2019, and just a, a litany of, of these types of concerns, you get the sense that this has been a fraught relationship, much in the same way that it was for uh, President Obama early in his administration, where he had goals that he wanted to achieve 
and he was facing resistance from not only military leaders, but also uh, some of these key political appointees, both in the State Department and the Department of Defense. And so I think really, at least based on what we've seen so far, you know, the likely explanation in why you bring in someone like, you know, Acting Secretary Chris Miller, who is, you know, not known as a Trump loyalist, he is known as a counterterrorism expert, um, has a, has a very good reputation. You know, he's the kind of guy who you might come in if you wanted to switch to a more CT focused policy in Afghanistan and Iraq, which we saw announced yesterday uh, of drawdowns to 2,500 in both locations, 2,500 troops. So he might be the kind of person, one that would be in less of a position than Secretary Esper was to make a hard bureaucratic push to constrain the president, as well as be somebody who you might want, you know, to be overseeing this process uh, as you go out from sort of a technical standpoint. Some of the other positions, I think, are a little more alarming because while uh, Chris Miller is, you know, certainly has a good reputation, he is underqualified for someone who would usually be serving in this role. Right. Um, and, and, you know, that's not a shot at his, his competence. He's just does not have the same pedigree that most secretaries would have. But right. a, few of, a few of the others, you know, are people who weren't confirmed by the Senate and moved into acting positions that would usually require uh, the consent of the Senate. You have, you know, former retired general Anthony Tata, who was initially going to go up before Congress uh, to be the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and it became clear that he would not get confirmed. And so instead, uh, he moved down into um, a lower tier position that didn't require, uh, didn't require Senate confirmation. But now you have him performing the duties of the very position that uh, the Senate tried to block him. And so, you know, I think that is, um, that is concerning in its own right that you see sort of this petuous behavior by the administration, not for any clear, you know, any clear policy reason or at least clear national security reason, but you see these, these actions that make the transition from uh, this administration to the next administration probably more difficult than it needed to be. But, you know, you can understand President Trump's fr- frustration. He, is, he has had policies he wanted to carry out and many military officers, for good reason, have pointed out risks and drawbacks and argued back. But President Trump just did not feel like he had the people in place to accomplish his goals. And it's his prerogative as president to make those changes if he if he wants to take those steps, which we you know saw him do over the last week. Yeah, I mean, uh, it is interesting. I do I do sometimes think that that some of these things kind of betray some of the weakness of the president instead of the strength you know, a a stronger president would have been able to work the process and get through all of this and figure out a way to get what he actually wanted and build the political capital to do this instead of kind of this impetuous last minute, I didn't get what I want. So I'm going to fire you all and, you know, figure out a way to do it. If there was a political movement that that was willing and and ready to do this, he should have been able to, to pull on that. But maybe that that's a that's further down there uh, than than we need to go. I think I think unfortunately we leave lots of open questions here. So so let's let's figure out a time to to do this again. But maybe we should wrap it up for now. Jim, uh, where can uh, listeners find out more about your podcast? Thank you for your service and and uh, the rest of your work. So uh, thank you for your service as a podcast that focuses on civil military relations. Uh, we dive into all sorts of uh, topics that explore these gaps between civilians and the military um, on a bi-weekly basis. Uh, it's hosted or at least owned by the Center for Strategic International Studies, 
So you can uh, go yep. to the CSIS uh, webpage where you can look up thank you for your service or any place you get podcasts. If you type in thank you for your service, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, whatever, we're, we're listed on all the major services. And then, you know, the rest of my work, I'm, I'm currently at the University of Texas at Austin, where I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center for National Security. I teach there. I write there. I'm currently work, working on a book with uh, Peter Fever from Duke University about this question of why does, why does the public have so much confidence in the military and what are the things we can do to protect the institution and what are the things we can do to hopefully learn lessons from that relationship that might help rebuild some of the trust in our other institutions. So um, you can follow me you know, on Twitter as well at, at Jim Golby, where you know, I, I post a lot of my research as it comes out. Great. Well, thank you, Jim. And uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, I highly recommend your work and, and I follow you on Twitter and, and love your podcast. So I can recommend it. Thanks for being with us and we'll, we'll see you again soon. Great. Thank you very much.